Hello and welcome to this edition of the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast. I'm James Morris, Trainee Associate Editor at the Journal. Today I've ventured one mile down the road in the sunshine on my bike to join Gavin Johnson at University College Hospital uh, in London uh, to discuss his recent paper entitled A Practical Guide to the Management of Acute Pancreatitis, published in Frontline. Gavin's a consultant gastroenterologist here at UCLH and senior lecturer in medical education at University College London with a main interest in pancreatic biliary medicine and advanced ERCP in the US. Gavin, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks, James. Good to be here. So to make sure we're all on the same page at the beginning, can you uh, start by defining acute pancreatitis? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. It's not usually a very difficult diagnosis to make because the, the hallmark of acute pancreatitis is pain. The exceptions might be the obscure setting of ITU and the, the, the moribund patient, etc. But essentially, you've got an, a patient with significant abdominal pain and a meaningful uh, elevation of either usually amylase, but also lipase can be used as well. So two or three times the upper limit of normal. Um, of course, imaging can help. But as we're going to perhaps come to, early imaging is not uh, necessary and probably should be avoided within 48 hours to to appropriately prognosticate. So pain pain and digestive amylase rise. So we'll come back to imaging shortly, and you touched there on prognostication. Can you just talk through what the main features are of an adverse prognosis in patients with pancreatitis? You describe in your paper, it's a, a spectrum of disease. It is, and more often than not, it is gonna settle with conservative management and the patient will be out within a few days. But if a patient develops the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, either at admission or persisting into 48 hours, they are patients who are not going to do very well. So you, you soon know whose physiological parameters are deteriorating very early on, and they're patients who are going to need the enhanced care environment and the support of our uh, intensive care colleagues. Uh, you can, of course, use other um, commonly used scoring systems as the Apache 2 Ransom and the modified Glasgow not many of those are easily translated to the bedside in the acute setting when you're there on a, on a post-take round or an A&E. So the, the association with SIRS is probably the most practically useful. Um, things that get me worried is patients with, this is bordering on the anecdotal, but a patient who's looking a little bit shocking from the end of the bed, early sepsis is not a good thing. Uh, a patient who has obesity does not do so well and my hypothesis of that is that SIRS is more likely in the context of obesity because of the fat necrosis triggering um, some of the pathophysiological associations of acute severe pancreatitis. And just taking a step back a bit and thinking about etiology, what just remind us what the most common causes of acute pancreatitis are in patient population today. Sure, no, uh, I think my medical students could handle this one but if you guess at alcohol or gallstones you'll be right 95% of the time in the UK. Uh, we have a slight twist here at UCH. We do 700 ERCPs a year and therefore provide our intensive care colleagues with a few cases per year, regrettably. Um, so that slightly tilts the population. Um, so that's an iatrogenic injury. Um, I would flag up the importance of thinking about a structural lesion within the pancreas in a patient who's of the right kind of age. So I guess 50 plus, 60 plus. Had a very interesting patient on the ward just last week who was uh, 55 fit as anything, had not had a day off work in his life and presented with to three hospitals over the last six months with I think 15 episodes of mild but proven acute pancreatitis 
And he trivially said that one of the hospitals has said he had a pancreatic cyst. And we thought, oh, that's very common. 4% of us will have a pancreatic cyst. And it's only upon reviewing his imaging that he really had a quite impressive side branch IPMN um, with slight dilatation of the main pancreatic duct and without wanting to obsess on cysts. It was a reminder that his cause of what was clearly a problem in somebody who was teetotal, who'd had an endoscopic ultrasound ruling out gallstones or any problems in his gallbladder, it was far more likely to have a structural problem when the story is that dramatic. And indeed, he has been referred fast track for surgery. And even while waiting for surgery, had two further admissions with, for 48 hours with, with acute pancreatitis. So he's lucky in that his is a cyst, but you could have the very same story with a small adenocarcinoma. In fact, I always say the lucky ones present with pancreatitis. It's not very common that you present with pancreatitis with your adenocarcinoma, uh, but the lucky ones do. I had one about six weeks ago who had a very, very small change to her caliber of pancreatic duct on the US, had a clear mass. She presented with pancreatitis. And more common, perhaps, is a slower-growing neuroendocrine. So do think about structural lesions, small neoplasms and cysts in the patient who's got the right age, because if you don't do your interval imaging or don't quite review the imaging in the right way, they, the, the tragedy is to miss those. So in terms of a take-home message, yes, alcohol, yes, gallstones, yes, iatrogenic, but if they're the right age group because it's bad to miss them, think about a, a structural lesion, a neoplasm or a cyst. So we've got a patient who's come through uh, the door on the take and they've been diagnosed with acute pancreatitis with abdominal pain and a raised um, amylase. You mentioned imaging. Now, it's almost impossible for someone with abdominal pain to come through the door of and not have a CT scan. Can you just talk about the appropriate use of imaging in, in acute pancreatitis? Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Very often they get very early CT. You, but at that point, you might see a little rim of fluid around the pancreas. You might see a lot of fluid around the pancreas. You might see edema of the gland, but you're not going to see necrosis because it hasn't had time to, for the pancreatic parenchyme to die off for them to show a differential on the, um, the phase which you can show that there is a lack of contrast within that tissue, i.e. necrosis. So if it's barn door pancreatitis and there's nothing else that may have gone on and the amylase is in the hundreds and there's acute abdominal pain, it's perfectly reasonable to wait for 48, 72 hours to do that initial CT. In practice, a patient with acute severe abdominal pain, as you've said, on the surgical take is going to get a CT sometimes before the amylase is back. Maybe not quite like that, but you, you, you get the point. But then you can get false reassurance that there's a, a fairly modest looking pancreatitis on that early scan. And if that patient then deteriorates or the CRP climbs significantly, I wouldn't necessarily always repeat the CT but I would in the context of a, a rapidly escalating CRP. The amylase is no longer useful after diagnosis. You then look towards the CRP to show how much uh, necrosis there is, if there is fat necrosis around the gland, is there associated infection, although CRP is incredibly misleading on that front because it goes up anyway. Then you might, if the CRP got up over 200, you may choose to repeat the CT or potentially an MR if you were concerned about uh, radiation to document whether there is pancreatic necrosis and there is then a prognostic association and certainly in terms of hospital stay and length of stay if a patient is necrosis free and there's little by way of free fluid around the pancreas on day two or three they're probably going to do fine okay even if the crp is at 300 uh, you know you're not going to get infection complications you're not going to get walled off necrosis and so on and we can talk about the classification of those shortly but you can probably reassure the patient they are likely to be home within a week. So we discussed a patient in an M&M meeting recently 
who experience what seems to be a very classic ping-pong between surgical teams and medical teams about ownership of the patient when they're admitted uh, through A&E. And it seems that we do patients a disservice by this confusion over who takes ownership of them. What, in your opinion, is the best place for these patients to be managed? I think there should be a policy within a hospital that somebody who has an interest in it should take them. So there's very obvious reasons why it's historically been surgeons, because it presents with pain, which may have an alternative explanation when they come through the door, such as perforated ulcer, etc. Um, and also, in the olden days, acute severe pancreatitis may have resulted in a laparotomy and operation. I'll note, we'll perhaps get into why that is a very bad idea based on the latest evidence but it used to be considered a surgical problem. The swing has definitely changed in that the solutions are with appropriate early management and monitoring, good, good intensive care if it's needed, and then if anyone's going to intervene on that patient, it's likely to be either a radiologist or an endoscopist in 2019. And therefore, there's an argument if you've got gastroenterologists with an interest in the sort of interventions that might be necessary, i.e. Uh, EUS, ERCP, then they'd be the appropriate physician to bring them under. But so long as there is appropriate skilled awareness of these patients and they're, they're managed comprehensively. Uh, where acute pancreatitis is managed very well is in regions where there is an appropriate network. So when you are a little bit concerned about a CT scan on day two, three, four, perhaps the patient's on intensive care, then that scan should be discussed by way of an MDM. I think this does happen, but in some regions it's way more systematic rather than ad hoc. Uh, and I don't think in our region we've particularly sorted it out. Yes, we hear about the acute sick pancreatic patients, but it may go to the Royal Free where the surgeons are. It may come to us as the endoscopists at University College. Uh, I sit in both MDTs anyway, but it's not systematic. There isn't a referral hotline. There's no fast track to review the CT with an appropriately trained endoscopist, radiologist, and potentially pancreatic surgeon. And some networks I could mention have got that sorted out. Um, it's a bit much to take all the acute severe pancreatic patients to tertiary care. Um, they may need to come in for a certain procedure, drainage, ERCP, etc. But what they really need is very good ITU and that can be done in most places. So it's a bit controversial if, if it's possible to transfer all those patients in. And certainly speaking specifically in our region, that is not possible to take them all. So your point on ITU that brings us on nicely to the point I want to discuss, which was initial resuscitation. I'd like to come back to endoscopy sure. afterwards. But your paper mentions the vital importance of adequate initial fluid resuscitation, but also raises the, red, the potential of over-resuscitation and the risk of increased sepsis, mechanical ventilation, mortality yeah. with yeah. excessive risk. In your experience, what's the most common pitfall when it comes to the initial resuscitation of patients with acute I, I think the message has probably got through, and it's hard to be specific because we don't see the patients that early on. Um, but I think there is a, such a thing as over-resuscitation. I think the message has got through that if you've got a patient with pancreatitis, aggressive early resuscitation is important. So you could talk about um, 5 to 10 mils per kilogram, etc. But as a practical guide, you want an early fluid bolus, 250 to 500 at least. And then the first 6 to 12 hours is critical. And a practical guide, depending on the size of the patient, is at least 3 litres, probably 4 in the first 24 hours. Uh, there's a lot of third spacing going on. And the logic is if you then get um, hypovolemic, you get microvascular collapse within the pancreas, you get perfusional issues, and that is the hypothesis as to the secondary hit of the pancreas doing worse. So if the hematocrit and urea 
So if the hematocrit rises and the urea rise in the first 24 hours, that's been shown in EBN grade A evidence that that patient, that prognosis, that patient's probably not going to do so well. They basically have been inadequately resuscitated. So we need to see a drop in the hematocrit and urea at the 24 hour mark. Um, there is also now very elegant data that Ringer's lactate does better than standard crystalloid. So again, that is analogous to Hartman's in the UK. Okay. So that's what we would use. So let's go back to the role of endoscopy in the US. What's the role, firstly, in the acute setting um, of managing these patients and then subsequently? In yeah, so we, we talked about imaging and see, this is where it gets a bit confusing because there are roles for other modalities in that context. So an early CT tells you about necrosis and you can prognosticate based on that premise. Um, and tr a traditional transabdominal ultrasound has a role to see if they have gallstones in the gallbladder. So that helps start thinking about etiology. Although I would remind you that if the ALT is elevated on admission, and if it's uh, three times the upper limit of normal, that has a predictive value of the cause of the pancreatitis being biliary of about 96%. So if the ALT is up meaningfully, you're dealing with a patient with gallstones. It doesn't matter what they drink, assume it's gallstones until proven otherwise. That's where the role of uh, standard ultrasound comes in. If they've then got gallstones in the gallbladder, regardless of what's happening into the duct, you've got an etiology. That patient needs to leave the hospital without their gallbladder or be given a date for a gallbladder extraction very, very, very quickly for cholecystectomy. And that came out in the 2016 UK NCPOD report, loud and clear. We're not good at getting gallbladders out quickly. I digress. MR then has a role. If you're querying a stone within duct, then a, a standard MRCP, bright T2-weighted reconstructed signals, will show you stone in duct. So if the LFT is off or remaining off or there's some biliary dilatation on the CT or the ultrasound, an MR is useful if the patient's well enough. There is still no mad dash to get that patient into an ERCP unless the context is that of cholangitis. So if you have a patient with obstructive liver function tests, clearly cholangitic with rigors, elevated CRP, fevers, um, and, and the association of acute pancreatitis, that is the Friday evening ERCP that probably should not wait till Monday. But purely obstructed picture, in the absence of cholangitis, you probably don't need to lose sweat over a weekend and it's best done in the appropriate environment of, a, of an ERCP with the right team around you, etc. So cholangitis is the key for an early ERCP. There are trials ongoing on that. That, that advice may change with time, but at the moment that remains the maximum in most of the guidelines. And what about, just very briefly, the role of EUS in diagnostic uncertainty of the underlying cause? So for, for, for MRCP, you could read EUS. It will show you stones in duct. However, there are practicalities of an EUS in a sick patient who's in pain, may not do quite so well with fentanyl and midazolam. Um, you may have an edematous duodenum after two or three days, so your access to the duodenal bulb may be a bit limited. So in all sense and purposes, an early EUS just to find a stone in the duct in this particular context is not good. But yes, you're quite right, EUS has an even better sensitivity for bile duct stones than MR in most people's hands. So EUS, great for bile duct stones in this particular acute setting of pain and potentially edematous duodenum, etc. Probably less good. It'd be great now to move on to discussing the management of the chronic complications of acute pancreatitis or two, three, four weeks further on and the management of collections. Can you just describe how the nomenclature has developed over the last few yeah, years and how the management has changed? And we are hearing 
this still hasn't quite got through in that people, often radiologists, are not reporting these quite strictly speaking accurately and it does inform treatment and is therefore important. So people should be using the Atlanta classification of acute pancreatitis, which essentially establishes a patient with acute pancreatitis and then there is an early and late phase. So in the early phase, that's within four weeks, the patient may have interstitial edematous pancreatitis and we then call that an acute peri peripancreatic fluid collection. Okay, it may be infected or it may be sterile, but you have an acute peripancreatic fluid collection. If there is any degree of necrosis, we then call that collection acute necrotic collection. At, that is, at no point should you then be proceeding transmurally with EUS. You may require a percutaneous drain in that context into an infected fluid collection. Of course, it needs draining if it's infected, but your access within four weeks, by and large, is going to be percutaneously. After the four-week mark, the nomenclature changes, and that fluid collection by then will have had some semblance of a capsule, and then we can use the expression pseudocyst. So all of these things get brushed with the same broad brush of being called a pseudocyst, but strictly speaking, a pseudocyst is more than four weeks old, and it is also lacking necrosis. It may be infected, it may be sterile, but it is lacking necrosis. As soon as you have any degree of tissue necrosis within that collection, it's no longer, strictly speaking, a pseudocyst, and it is called walled-off necrosis, W-O-N, and you then have a potential issue draining that percutaneously because of the calibre of the drains, and we start getting into transmural drainage in a bigger way for walled-off necrosis. So it's the Atlanta classification, and those, those important differences do need to be understood. That's really helpful. I was particularly interested in the paper, moving on to the management um, or the use of antibiotics, um, and I was interested how uh, you mentioned that injudicious use of antibiotics could increase the rate of multi-resistant organisms in water yeah. necrosis. However, in practice, how often do patients, by definition, have an acute inflammatory response with raised white cell count, CRP, maybe fevers, etc.? How can we avoid them starting antibiotics? So I think, I think you're forgiven for starting them in that context in ITU of a patient who may be septic. I mean, intensivists are pretty good at working out if someone genuinely is septic. But I think where mistakes are made is the A&E knee-jerk response. Acute pancreatitis equals broad-spectrum antibiotics. It does not and should not. Again, unless there is cholangitis. It is very unlikely that that patient is presenting with infected peripancreatic fluid collection or an infected acute necrotic collection at that stage that I have seen it and it does happen. The patient will be very sick with gram negative sepsis. Usually you're talking about patients with an obstructed gallstone. So yes, if you're cholangitic, you get antibiotics, but almost no one else should. Don't treat the CRP, treat the fever, treat the rigors in the context of biliary obstruction in the acute setting. Further down the line, again, you've got a patient whose CT has shown quite clearly acute necrotic collection. You've got a CRP of three, 400, You've got a white cell count of 20, but that patient isn't shivering, shaking, and rigoring. You've got an afebrile patient. Don't be tempted to jump in with your broad spectrum or even specific antibiotic at that stage, because that's where, if that patient heads to trouble, and a week later, fast forward, they might well be on all sorts of antibiotics for genuine infected necrosis, but don't go in too early, because you are just going to breed resistance. And some of the other things about negative associations of, the, uh, of, of antibiotics we brought into the paper. There is talk of, uh, and some people do, if there is concern as to whether something is infected, do an EUS purely for aspiration in the early stage. It's something we don't particularly do. We, we are slightly more empirical about that. 
Uh, but some guidelines will talk about doing a, a pure needle aspiration to determine if a collection is infected. I think that's quite quite an aggressive way of drawing that conclusion. And furthermore, you stand every chance of inoculating a, what, what proves then to have been, before you went into it, a sterile collection. That's very helpful indeed. I'd just like to finish now, Gavin, by moving on to nutrition, which to my mind seems to have always been a very complicated and slightly controversial area. So enteral nutrition, parental nutrition, NG tube, post-pancreatic NJ tube, what is the current recommended approach for feeding in acute pancreatitis? Okay, so sort of single slide summary, if you like. Um, mortality is worse if you are not giving the patient sufficient nutrition. That's absolutely not rocket science. It probably applies to just about every serious medical and surgical condition you could name, but you do need to consider calories very early on. If the patient has mild acute pancreatitis, just get them eating. Not a problem. And you know who the mild ones are going to be. We've talked about that. But they're fine to eat. They may be off their food. Don't worry about eating within 48 hours. But after that, you can get them eating if, if you wish. Then we come down, if they do need nutritional support to meet their calorific requirements, we come down to enteral, using the gut versus parenteral. And all of the meta-analyses, Mayerl in 2005, Petrov 2008, talk about coming down in favour of using the gut, so enteral feeding where possible. Now, we then get into do you tube feed beyond the ligament of trites, beyond the DJ flexure, i.e. a nasogeginal tube, or is it fine to give nasogastric? And when I was an SPR, we were putting NJs at a knee jerk within a few hours of diagnosing pancreatitis, way, way, way over treating and over complicating the situation. And for quite a long time, we've established that nasogastric does just as well as nature judgmental. The theory of triggering further pancreatic secretion and inflammation because you're, you're um, putting food into the stomach is not borne out by outcomes. There's probably a theoretical risk, there's certainly an animal data on that, but it hasn't translated. So if the patient is not vomiting, does not have ileus, and they're two big issues in themselves in acute pancreatitis, and they just don't fancy eating and they're getting onto day, day three, four, five, get a nasogastric tube in. If they have ileus, or if they're vomiting, you may then think about nasogeginal. Even then with ileus on intensive care, you're probably not going to be able to use the gut anyway. It's still probably a good idea to trickle some feed in, even if it's five mils an hour, in terms of enteric barriers and preventing translocation of gut bugs into acute necrosis and all those sorts of hypotheses. So it's a good idea to trickle a bit of feed in if you can, but it's only at that point you'd hit parenteral nutrition. Thank you very much, Cameron. Well, this has been a very informative discussion and our time is short now, but I'd just like to close by um, asking you to summarise key learning points that you'd like the readers to take away from your paper. Okay, so uh, consider it early. It's not a difficult diagnosis to make, but once it's uh, a diagnosis that has been made, um, basic guidelines, avoid antibiotics, decent fluid resuscitation with Ringer's or Hartman's, and consider nutrition, as we've said. Um, don't do your CTs too soon, because that is important prognostically, that's number two. Number three is be happy with your definitions, the Atlanta classification of what these things are. Is it acute? Is it um, chronic? Is there necrosis? Um, I think specialist review of imaging as to yeah. the most appropriate intervention. Yeah. So. If you've got a patient who's not doing well, who has got fluid around, has got necrosis around, get that CT reviewed by a, by a unit that, 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 that sees a lot of this. That doesn't mean they're going to take the patient. They may wish to, but 
really getting some expertise of radiology, surgery and endoscopist early on in these patients. And where we see nightmares is when we're hearing three months in about a patient who's been languishing on ITU somewhere. Probably great ITU, but that length of stay may have been significantly abbreviated by, by intervening a bit sooner. Gareth, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, that brings us to an end uh, to the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast for this month. Thank you for joining us. I do hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you have, please rate it on your podcast provider. And we look forward to seeing you again next month. Thank you.